Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. Thank you for joining us again today. So we had an unexpected week off because of, you know, various things. I actually got to go on a, I'm not going to say vacation. I went on a family trip. So parents know that that's not really a vacation. And Katie got COVID and lambs. So uh, she was also a little bit busy. So Katie, what's going on in Iowa now? The lambs didn't have COVID, right? The boy child. No, but I think maybe sheep actually can get COVID. Our vet mentioned something in passing, so oh. I need to Google that. Um, okay. And it makes sense yeah, if it came from animals that it would go back to animals. I don't know if everyone has seen that bats have apparently been exonerated as the species that COVID came from. So, yay, bats. Oh. Um, I'm totally for justice for bats. Cultural traditions in that, but maybe don't eat them. Maybe just let them be bats and. They can be awesome, and we can be awesome. And Anyway, that's not the guilty party on the COVID situation. On the other hand, my four-year-old son, definitely the guilty party on the COVID situation in our house. <laughs> yeah, he um, did give you COVID. Yes, and yes, we are all very heavily vaccinated, which I am incredibly grateful for, because we could have been a lot sicker than we were, and I am very grateful to have not been sicker than I was. We are at... 37 lambs. I am very much enjoying my new Muddy's overalls with the waterproof knees came and I can fit four lamb feeding bottles in the pockets and no placenta oh, knees, which nice. is awesome. Um, and Darlene's back from her family trip. So that's those awesome. waterproof knees are uh, waterproof working out for you. So uh, awesome. that's 37 lambs out of how many out of how many use? I didn't count the use. 15, 16. We're, uh, okay. We've Are got, you almost we've got done? some sets of quads. No, we're like halfway done. Um, I think maybe okay. we're a little over halfway. So, and mm-hmm. I've got today a number of views who all look like they might all go at exactly the same time. And all of our lambing pens are currently perfect. Full. So, if you need me or Jim, we will be in the lambing barn figuring out where the fuck we're going with all these sheep like we do every year i mean it's not like it's a new problem <laughs> yeah. but every year it's a, it's a, yeah it's not it's a surprise a no but every year it is a surprise i don't know um it's like yeah. your kids outgrowing their clothes like you know it's gonna happen but when it does happen you're like what the fuck <laughs> like, yeah um, why why are they wearing capris all the time so one last bit of an update from our place our grocery bill has gone through the fucking roof in the last month and i didn't know why and then jim said something about measuring the kids the other day so i did and the girl child has grown just under an inch in the last month the boy child has grown just over an inch in the last month um so it explains a lot about why it has felt so much like feeding time at the zoo around here because like literally all i do is throw food at my kids <laughs> yeah buy them new clothes that are longer and they're eating some of their meals at school 
yeah, no, they eat two meals a day at school, and it's still insane. Um, because, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they eat breakfast here before they go to school to eat breakfast again. Um, right, yeah, got it. Yeah. So how are things at your place, Arlene? Doesn't look like your house burned down while you were gone, so that's Things good. are good. No, everything went well here as far as I've been told. Uh, as long as we didn't get any phone calls or messages, I will assume that that is true. And yeah, we went away. So we, like I said, two weeks ago, I guess when our last episode came out, it was, it's our, was our last March break. So we have spring break in March here in Ontario and my daughter's going to be going to university in the fall. So she won't get a March break anymore. She'll get a reading week in February instead. So for our four kids and our family, this will be kind of our last hurrah with everyone having the same schedule in terms of a school holiday so we went away we went to california which was a pretty big experience for us so we flew to san francisco and did some of the sites around there did the alcatraz thing and we went to the down the coast to monterey and we didn't get washed out there were there's lots of flooding and there were some road closures so we uh, didn't get to travel quite as much on highway 1 as i had hoped you know to see the whole california coastline cuz some of it is mudslides and uh, destroyed roads so we avoided those sections and we also got as far down as hearst castle and so it was a really good trip. I mean, of course, traveling with children and children of varying ages means there's challenges for sure. Our kids range from 17 to 8, so finding things that everybody enjoys is not always the easiest, but we did have a mostly good time together and um, renewed our love for Airbnb, so we weren't all crammed into uh, one or two hotel rooms, so that was good too. And now we're back, so kids are back in school, we're back in the barn, and I will say it feels like it never left, although it does feel like we left because I'm de dealing with some serious jet lag the last couple of days and just want to uh, sleep all the time, except at night when I should be sleeping. So that's fun. Are there any more jerseys coming to your barn? Did Liam like make uh, inroads while you were gone? <laughs> my, uh, my daughter's boyfriend um, was one of our... Uh, one of the people here doing chores while we were gone and he did not sneak any more jerseys into, into our facility. It, so it, yeah, still just, still just three. I feel like you really missed an opportunity to borrow some from another farm and um, how bad would Hugh's head have exploded <laughs> just sneak if you come and, home and the barn had just made yeah. I will say that the two jerseys that are milking are more trouble than just about all of the Holsteins. So uh, it's not, they're, they're not really winning any points for more jerseys coming in because they, they are kind of a pain in the butt. Yeah, one of them is a big kicker and the other one is the curious jersey that everyone warns you about who likes to play with hoses and and everything that is within her reach. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I know that they are well loved by their uh, teenage owners, but they're less well loved by the uh, adults in the barn. I like that their teenage rebellion has taken so the form of Jersey cattle. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. the worst, really. We can, we can handle this, I suppose. So should we go ahead, yeah, and introduce our guest for yes. this week? It's going to be all about bats, which is awesome, <laughs> and a few and other topics, some other shit, whatever. It's mostly about bats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Katie got him because of the bats, though. So, 
Today, we are talking to Dr. Sean McCormick, who's a veterinarian, wildlife presenter, conservationist, and naturalist joining us from the UK. So Sean, we start each of our interviews with the same question. This is a way to introduce yourself to our listeners, and we ask, what are you growing? So this can cover crops, livestock for our farmers, and then also covers families, businesses, social change, and all kinds of other stuff. So Sean, what are you growing? Cool. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's great to uh, great to come on and chat. Um, I'm growing a couple of things. I'm growing something quite literally and uh, something quite figuratively, I suppose. So the, the literal thing is I've been um, growing an allotment. So in the UK, we have these um, kind of community gardens where you can rent space and um, grow your own food off the local council. And I've had one for four years, but unfortunately, I'm getting kicked off. I haven't been misbehaving, <laughs> but the uh, the cemetery next door, the graveyard next door is expanding and 50 of us are losing our plots. So I'm actually starting from scratch on a new plot of ground. Um, it's bigger than my apartment <laughs> in London, um, but yeah, it's starting to build. Um, I've just come from there actually, and um, I've been building raised beds and I'm going full no dig on this new allotment. Um, and kind of trying to weave in a lot of permaculture principles. So that's the, the kind of um, literal thing. And then the other thing I'm growing is um, a conservation group in my community called Ealing Wildlife Group, where I live in West London. And um, we're recruiting for a lot of new officer roles and, and we're expanding the team basically and taking on quite a few new projects, hopefully very exciting projects coming in 2023. So that's been a kind of passion project for the last five years. And it's starting to reach, you know, becoming a kind of much more uh, official and, and formal conservation group, which is really good. When it comes to allotments, um, I've I've seen them like on, on social media and kind of, you know, like I, I know a friend of mine in London has one. So you're renting the land or do you have you're, to like put in an application or how does that all work? Yeah, they're very popular um, over here. Um, so you basically you rent the land. So you pay the local council who owns the land. They kind of lease out um, allotment space to, to uh, the community. And the idea behind them years and years ago was um, they actually came, popped up in the UK in wartime when people were asked to grow their own food um, because, you know, imports were difficult and um, money was tight and things, and they asked people to grow their own food, and they allocated you or they allotted you a piece of land. Um, and then it's kind of grown into something in every town and village, basically kind of has an allotment site or two, and um, generally run by the council. You pay a small rent, so I pay um, about £105 for the year and I have 110 square meters of ground to cultivate. And you can grow, most of the time people grow food on it, but you know, it's kind of changing into actually being recreational use as well, especially in urban environments. I live in a one bedroom apartment with a small balcony and you know, I have lots of plants in pots, but I really need my outdoor space. So I kind of have it as my garden and my growing space at the same time. Um, but yeah, it's very cheap and affordable um, place to rent and grow your own food. and cut down on food miles and have a, a nice space to go to. Um, and you can grow ornamentals as well, you know, you can grow flowers and different people keep bees on them and chickens and different things. So yeah, really, really good kind of um, food, um, sustainable kind of way of, of growing your own food and being part of a, a really cool little community as well. Because there's, a, there's, a yeah, so there's a good social life around it as well. 
Yeah, it's a neat concept for sure. So are things like watering stations available or that kind of stuff? Or Yeah, yeah. Um, so they like allocate... Infrastructure around it? Yeah, normally. Um, so certainly with um, with most of the council ones, they'll have, you know, piped water and water tanks and probably one kind of water trough um, per four or six kind of plots. So staggered all down. And it's a great system. So um, my one, I think, has over 300 plots. Um, so it's a big, massive grid in between these um, roads of housing. Um, and it's got infrastructure like um, shared tools. So people don't have to buy their own machinery and tools. You can just go and um, borrow them from the allotment society. So part of your fee runs a committee in a society and they have tools. They order in compost in bulk that you can buy from them. They get local tree surgeons to come and dump lots of bark mulch there that you can mulch your paths and um, do no dig beds and things like that. Um, leaf litter, stuff like that as well. Um, there's a communal kitchen. Um, there's even a, a social club and they're um, just building a bar on mine, which is quite fun. <laughs> so, Sweet. Yeah, yeah. So it's good. It's, it's a great way to be able to garden. They offer half plots to people, you know, who don't really have much experience to see how they get on. Um, and there's a big waiting list. Um, it's very, very popular now. So I think there's like 60 people waiting on my site um, for a plot. And um, you get a bit of turnover with new people, but there's been a lot of people have been there for like 30 and 40 years growing on the same plot. Um, are you also still practicing then as well? So I, on top of... Yeah, so I no longer practice um, in clinics as a vet. I did that for about six years, just over six years when I qualified um, as a vet. And um, I kind of got a little bit bored and I did get a little bit burned out as well. It's quite a stressful role. Um, I really felt quite kind of detached from why I got into veterinary medicine and um, you know what I really was passionate about as a kid and, and growing up which was nature and wildlife and ecology and um, the role of being a clinical vet for I started out in um, domestic and exotics and zoo work so I was you know quite attached I guess to kind of conservation medicine and wildlife but um, over time kind of came down to more domestic and exotic pets and just got a bit detached from what I thought I really wanted to do and, and the difference I wanted to make in the world, I suppose. So I um, decided to jump ship a little bit, move into industry and do a consultancy role. And then um, that gave me time basically to think about what else I wanted to do. First time uh, after qualifying as a vet that I actually had a work-life balance. <laughs> it was a pretty new concept to me. Um, so I started Ealing Wildlife Group then and um, that's where that's kind of grown from quite by accident but um it's become a really big part of my life probably i describe it as my second job but a job that doesn't pay me it's all voluntary um but we've built a really cool community we've got lots of people engaged in the urban environment with wildlife and our green spaces and what they can do to come along and volunteer and improve those green spaces both for people and for you know biodiversity and, and wildlife so it's i've got a i got a nice balance now between vet work and using my veterinary degree and knowledge um, in a consultancy role and then getting outdoors and being able to enthuse new people with nature and things as well so yeah nice little balance now so what led to you becoming a veterinarian did you grow up in agriculture or was it just sort of a too many james harriet books <laughs> i think it's a, it's probably a combination james harriet definitely had something to do with it i think you'd talk to any vet and uh, they'd be in denial if they said they hadn't read those books and been you know a bit intrigued or fascinated um i think i don't know what it is but basically from a 
extremely young age, as far back as I can remember. Even I've talked to my parents about it and they said from the very beginning, I was just fascinated with living things and nature and being outdoors. And my mum tells a story of like her having, nearly having a heart attack looking out the, the door at me in the garden. And I was probably age two or something. I was turning over a big rock or boulder in her rockery uh, to find woodlice and centipedes and beetles and things underneath. And she was like, oh, my God, how is he turning over that rock? It's about the same size as him. Um, so I just had this like real, real hunger and passion for like discovering creepy crawlies and birds and bugs and all sorts of things so that passion was always there I think it does kind of run in the family a little bit my dad was um quite interested in nature and things as a kid his parents and actually both my sets of grandparents they would have grown up in the countryside on kind of small holding Irish farm um kind of uh lifestyle um my grandparents passed on their love of gardening and growing food to me you know both sets had um lovely gardens that were like ornamental and beautiful as well as productive you know the rhubarb from my granny aggie was like amazing rhubarb tart and my granny kiki um you know her tomatoes were really great good and you know there was always that sense of like there was a connection to the land and where our food came from and being able to make a little patch productive um, so I definitely, of all my siblings, I've got five or four siblings, there's five of us in the family, of all of the siblings, I was the one that was like, if we go to visit my grandparents' house, I would be the one, can I go out to the garden? Can I see what you're growing? Like, I had that kind of passion, I suppose. And then during the summers, we grew up um, with my dad's job in insurance. We grew up on the outskirts of cities, really. We travelled around a little bit in Ireland to different cities over the course of my childhood. Um, but during the summertime, I was the kid who was like, can I go down the countryside to visit, you know, stay with my cousins, stay with my aunt and uncle and be out in the countryside. And so my summers, certainly when I wasn't in school, were, you know, splashing around in ponds and streams and ditches and climbing trees and, and visiting my cousins who actually had farms and things. So, yeah, there was always a connection there to kind of farming and food, I suppose. So do you have any tips for those of us? I mean, I'm obviously an animal person. Um, but for those of us who have kids who are now dragging creepy crawlies into the house, my daughter came Encourage home with a slug last week. <laughs> and I just, like, I'm I'm fine. We rescue spiders. You know, yeah. we never kill spiders in this house. But the the slugs. You and, draw the line at um, slugs, do you? She found a, a flower moth larva the other day that she wanted to keep as a pet. And I was like, oh. no. <laughs> but also, let's just put it in this plant so i'm wondering what what suggestions do you have for i yeah not being too grossed out by <laughs> i think we have to like yeah try and like suppress our own kind of um learned responses to things that are were taught to us as being disgusting or dangerous or icky or whatever um i see it with like my eldest niece and her mum was terrified my sister terrified growing up of anything creepy crawly um like actually having like a meltdown over a woodlouse in her bed one time and calling it an elephant and um yeah that one's for you Ashling. sorry to embarrass you but <laughs> I think you have to nurture it I think um we're you know you guys know the the pace of change that we've had over the last couple of generations in terms of what we're doing with the planet and what we're doing in terms of intensification of agriculture and industry and technology and everything kids these days and i sound like a real old man saying that 
in my day. I remember when this was all fields. But, um, you know, kids these days, they are so detached from nature and reality that if they pick up anything or take an interest in anything to do with the natural world, my I plead parents to please nurture that. Please allow them to explore that. You know, if they do find something fascinating, like say your daughter becomes fascinated by mollusks, much to your horror, buy her a book about slugs and snails, you know, just try and nurture that because the more and more detached each generation gets from nature and ecology and how we're all part of this big spinning, um, you know, rock and we can't live without it. I think we've been going down the wrong path with the technological age of thinking that we can mimic nature, we can do without nature, we can make up our own versions of how things are meant to be and we'll be fine. We know that's not the case. We're we're rapidly running out of time. So I think with kids um, having any interest in that is great. Nurture it. And if they don't have any interest, I'd also urge parents, try and spend the time to get them off technology and out into the natural world and, and experiencing things at, you know, a slower pace and also how fascinating and endless it is. You know, you never stop learning in, in the outdoors and nature. I will say as a little plug for technology and parenting and generally I absolutely agree with you. My kids have been watching, you know, different nature shows. They watch Octonauts and they watch what Kratz creatures mm. and that and they're four and six today and uh they know more biology about a lot of stuff than I do. And I majored in a biological science in college and they still know more than I do about a lot of it. So that's impressive. But we also read a lot of books and we were I think lucky enough to have an old farmhouse with a dirt floor basement, so we have all sorts of creepy crawlies. Great. <laughs> you know, we have a real variety of spiders and things. Some inside and, and some outside. Then. Yeah. Oh, a lot inside. We have a, a tiger salamander in our basement. Really? That we oh, investigate jealous. on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have lots of cool stuff. That's cool. So, Whereabouts in the know, country just, are you? Uh, northeast Iowa. Okay. So we're, yeah, it's... It's. I guess I expected to have more pushback about her hating creepy crawlies. So when she went straight from freaking out about a daddy long legs to bringing slugs home from other people's houses, um, I was a little surprised by. Yeah, that. I mean, some of that was. You know, she's my kid for sure. Yes, yeah. so. some of it's inherent. Inherent, you know, we're instinctively alarmed at like a big spider or a snake or something because it's in our evolutionary interest to be but a lot of it is learned from parents isn't it of like how how you react um, and that's interesting that you say about technology i mean the internet is bloody wonderful you know any any kind of bit of information is there at your fingertips whenever you want it when i was a kid i was that you know weird nature nerd child and begging my parents for this book and that book and pouring over and digesting it 17 times so i could almost you know <laughs> recited verbatim you guys are nodding you know what I'm talking about I was fascinated I was like give me more information but that information being out there at people's fingertips now is absolutely amazing we sound very mm -hmm. old guys on this reminiscing yes. about the old days <laughs> yeah the good old days for sure yeah I think Katie one of the tips that that Sean would probably say too though is that the slug should be in its natural habitat so if her bedroom is not that slug's natural habitat then that's a good way to get it out of your house if it's uh, if it didn't originate there. Yeah. We've um we've agreed to put them back in the potted plants that seems to be a, yeah. a way that she can that, that's a enjoy good compromise so and she doesn't, also doesn't love it too much. Do you know what I got as a, you've reminded me of something now I haven't thought about it for a few years at least 
my mum's friend got me a thing when I was a kid called the bug bottle. And it was the bug bottle and the bug book. And it was like a little square book that sat inside the bottle. And it was a bottle with a few holes in the in the thing, just basically a fancy jam jar. But it gave you little projects. Go and find a ladybird and go and keep this ladybird for like 24 hours and put in a, you know, shoot with some aphids on and watch it. And da, da. But it was very about much about encouraging you to find bugs and creepy crawlies, look at them for a limited period of time and then put them back in the wild. And it had little kind of homework tasks and things. So. Yeah, I forgot about that. But that was definitely something that, you know, she saw in me as a kid and, and nurtured it and grew a yeah. monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So farmers, by nature of what we do, end up being the caretakers of lots of land. I mean, the there's lots of conservation areas and parks and, you know, there are other conservers of land. But by nature of farmers' work, we end up owning and, and managing a lot of a lot of the world's earth, really. Um, so as someone who's passionate about nature and conservation, how do you see our role as farmers being participants in conservation? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a big question. Um, I think most farmers um, deep down in their hearts are conservationists and nature lovers, and they understand natural systems and they mimic them to grow our food and do wonderful work like that. Um, I think... Uh, Unfortunately, the systems that we've got into or been kind of forced to to get into in terms of growing food um, by our governments and subsidies and rewards and capitalism basically means that we're um, often forced to kind of go against that line of balance of things and to push our productivity right up to the edge of every habitat that we own and um, straighten lines and drain you know wet ground and chop down messy bits and tame the landscape um and i don't know you know the, the political system fully in in the us um i can speak for kind of ireland and the uk where i've grown up and lived um but definitely i think the onus largely is on governments and the systems that are in place that have asked or demanded farmers to if you want to stay in business this is how you do it and it's intensive 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 um, it's chemicals, it's, um, you know, killing things <laughs> left, right and centre that aren't uh, or are going inhibit, to inhibit your output. But I do see a bit of a sea change coming. And I think you guys would probably agree that there's um, pushback on governments and demand for governments to actually reward doing the right thing and being more balanced and reducing our carbon emissions in our food production systems and to allow some biodiversity benefits to kind of how we manage habitats and landscapes in the areas of land we own that aren't growing food. And people are really seeing the benefits now and pushing for the benefits, consumers and, and producers, of being more balanced and being more regenerative and allowing you know, nature to work alongside you rather than always being seen as the enemy. Because I think what I've learned on my allotment, which is tiny scale um, food production, is actually if you mimic kind of natural systems and you allow uh, a mixture of little mosaics of habitats to all exist or coexist together, you can grow more bountiful food, you can grow healthier food. I moved on to my first allotment about six years ago and it was the stereotypical English allotment of old boys who'd been there for 30 years growing neat rows of lettuces 
and there wasn't a weed in sight and they were up there every day tilling and you know their soil was terrible whenever it was dry their soil was literally dust um and they're watering and watering and watering these lettuces and you know slugs come on and just decimate them all all the seedlings in one night i went up there and i just started bombing things in polyculture like i've i've grown all this lettuce i don't have a lettuce bed i'll bung one in here one in here one in here one in here and the pest didn't get them and the same kind of thing kept happening i was just like doing polyculture i'm not tilling the soil i'm just throwing chicken manure from my chickens onto it each winter to rot down and before i even knew what no dig was it's kind of like doing no dig um and just with that polyculture and allowing weeds to grow and not ever having bare soil unless I was cultivating it at that moment, um, I produced bountiful food with very little watering because I didn't have time, no chemicals or sprays or anything whatsoever, um, encouraging little habitats for all the beneficial insects to come in. Um, so I think whatever scale you're on, mine is tiny and it absolutely, absolutely worked. But whatever scale you're on, actually seeing harnessing nature and natural areas and and ecosystem services brought on by wildlife and nature is the way forward and i know that commercially that's not always very easy to do as a farming model um but i think the you know ultimately farming people farmers and food producers are people who value nature understand nature want to work with nature and i just think the systems that society has put in place have, has been really detrimental to that link um but i do see it coming back and it's really really buoying to see that coming back and see how many um how much pressure governments are on under now to to actually establish systems that will reward nature friendly farming nature friendly food production because if we keep going the way we're going we are screwed let's be honest it's been fascinating to me. Arlene's Canadian, so I think we can excuse her from a fair amount of the American situation. <laughs> Sorry, Arlene. Um, but it's, you know, I'm 41, and so I'm old enough, even, you know, speaking of sounding really old, that, you know, when I was a kid, central Iowa is pretty heavy row crop territory and a lot of seed production, so everything is very uniform. Right. You know, for For seed production, you want every stock of corn to be exactly the yeah. same height. Every bean should be absolute exactly the same. Absolute monoculture, right? Absolute monoculture. And, you know, I remember watching, I'll go ahead and say guys, because I'm sure there were women involved, but we never saw them. You know, every fall you took the corn out, you disked it down. You know, black dirt everywhere, black snow everywhere. You know, in the spring you plant your corn, it will grow to exactly the same height, spray the hell out of it and call it good. And I think we're starting to see more cover cropping and more um, interseeding and grazing off cover crops and all of this. And as an animal person, it's exciting to me because we do see a lot more wildlife this way. Um, but also, I think there's such a feeling that you have to do one or the other, that there's no room between disc everything and kill everything and make it all perfect and being a weird hippie that's you know like poking in one seat at a time by hand naked under the moonlight like yeah. <laughs> you know chanting over it or whatever um so i'm wondering you know what your thoughts are on how we can encourage conservation while remembering that this is a business and dealing with the human nature of the whole thing because we still get 
we're seeing more folks utilizing things like government programs, like um, conservation reserve, that sort of thing. But there is still a fair amount of pushback that, you know, if you were a a real farmer, mm. you would be farming that. You would not be letting birds have it, even if you are making more money that way. You know, it's... Yeah. So I'm wondering what your, your thoughts are and what it's like in the UK, because I'm hoping it's different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a fascinating topic, isn't it? Um, I think you're dead right in terms of this black or white thinking i mean everything nowadays is so polarized that it's like if you're not with us you're against us if you know you're on the left or the right you're black you're white there's no gray area in arguing or discussing anything anymore um, and that's a real enemy to progress and innovation and and new ways of thinking um and i don't have the solution to that i i, I wish i did but i don't um i think the you know, the systems of subsidizing farmers for um, food production or valuing nature, those things need to be integrated. It, it shouldn't be one or the other. And definitely there is that movement of, you know, the newbies, um, the kind of um, uh, urban abandoners going and buying their little small holding with their um, capitalist money gains you know what i mean let's talk let's call a spade a spade here um and then telling people i do no till and i do, and it's like you also had a hundred thousand dollars capital to set up your lovely polytunnel venture and stop preaching to people who've been doing this for decades and probably know a lot more about you so there's absolutely like um ways to go about this discussion and and um it can be extremely divisive um you need to you absolutely need to respect people who have been farming the land for many many generations and this um i kind of talk about this a few times lately in ireland where i grew up the cultural history of land ownership is very very important um you know and being a former colony you know or being colonized by um the british empire and being a lot of generations or ancestors of ours being kicked off their land there became when the irish became a republic and and before um, there became this almost duty to the land and how you maintained it as its guardian or custodian and allowing it to go to rack and ruin, you know, by not cultivating it or not keeping it in good order, which is a very, very strong um, motivation for a lot of kind of farming generations, farming stock, was seen to be lazy, wasteful, um, an insult to your ancestors, all of this. So there's, you know, massive amounts of cultural tradition and expectation and um, guilt wrapped up in being a custodian of the land. And when someone, you know, tells you whether there's a, a subsidy attached to it or not, just let that bit there go scruffy and go wild and look to your kind of, I guess, indoctrinated mind, really abandoned and terrible, you know, that goes against everything you've been taught by your your parents and your grandparents and things. So there's a real cultural shift needed, and that's not going to happen, you know, in the space of ten or twenty or even fifty years. This is something that's going to need to happen over the next kind of um, century, really. So it's tricky, um, but I think having dialogue and not having to kind of say it has to be all or nothing. Actually, a farmer's, you know, a farmer having one awkward field that's difficult to get, you know the plow into or, or whatever actually if he or she could say right I'm going to shave off the corner of that field and let that go to bird food over winter 
even if I can't attract a subsidy because it's not big enough. And just those little kind of steps and just being able to see the benefits. You know, those birds might be feeding on the seeds that you planted for them in the wintertime, but when they're raising their chicks, they're eating caterpillars off your crops. So, the, you know, it's not this like, oh, I ticked that one little box of feeding finches in the wintertime. It's actually, I ticked that box of feeding f winter finches when times are tough for food for them but they're going to provide me ecosystem services down the line next spring when they're raising their young and i think getting back to that circular system that we use in agriculture all the time that you know we raise animals for meat and their manure goes back into the soil to build soil and productivity and fertility for our plant crops and some of the waste products of those plant plant crops bed our animals over winter when it's cold and we eat the rest and it's this circular system Everything's a circular system. All we're doing in farming is mimicking nature. And I think if we can build in more of those circular um, kind of uh, relationships and circular kind of processes within to the land, we will see the benefit. The difficulty, I think, and here's where the crunch lies, the difficulty is in quantifying those benefits. You, you, no agronomist out there that I know of um, in North America or in the UK has is quantifying the value of a pair of blue tits or in your neck of the woods chickadees in a, you know in a nest in an old oak tree in the edge of your field of insert crop name here no one has quantified what the value that pa that pair of blue tits raising a clutch of 10 or 12 youngsters has but they do they do have a, a value um and we're dealing in the UK at the moment with kind of quite a bit of backlash around beaver reintroduction um you know and people are trying to say Beavers may be a nuisance if they're like flooding your potato field or your carrot field, but by putting in a river buffer of 20 meters either side of your little small stream or river, the beavers will stay in there, but you'll have less flooding in the village downstream and you'll have um, more beneficial birds and insects looking after your crop pests and taking care of them and all these benefits that unfortunately in agriculture especially in large-scale industrial commercial agriculture they need to have a price attached and we're just not good at putting the price or the value on ecosystem services nature services sometimes we don't even know what they are until they kind of manifest or show themselves way down the line so yeah a bit of a rambly answer but like it's such a complex topic and i think actually just more respectful dialogue it's not all or nothing you can have a mixed approach government systems in place need to, to value kind of both food production and protecting nature um, because they, they just shouldn't be separate things, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, a lot of that conversation has to go back to research, right? Yeah. I mean, we need to be, we need to be incorporating. I mean, one of the questions I have coming up is about that concept of one health, but we also need our agricultural researchers and scientists to be looking at not just productivity as, as the, only marker the only measure we need to also yeah. be yeah yeah we we need to be looking at all of those interrelations and so many times science gets so tuned down to i mean it's easier to measure right if you're if you're in a controlled situation right you're just looking at this one thing but but then that doesn't extrapolate very well out to these bigger concepts yeah yeah so it's that's like it's like the meat argument, you know, or the beef argument and the, this whole, you know, it's not the cow, it's the how. And, you know, we get quoted over here, you know, the the global figure or the average figure that's been published for how much, you know, how much in terms of carbon emissions does your fillet steak cost? Well, 
that depends, doesn't it, on whether it's Argentine steak or, you know, from the US or from grass-fed beef in the UK or Ireland. Those are all very different things. So this kind of simplification of really, really complex topics and figures doesn't do anyone any favours. And again, it polarises us into, you know, veganism is the answer for all the world's problems and we'll definitely save the planet if we just stop eating meat. Mm, Well, what about (laughs) monocultures and where are you going to get your building soil without herbivores and all this, you know. Yeah, what about all that rangeland that is only good for pasture animals, right? And and the the contributions that those animals do actually bring back into the natural world. Exactly. And um, dare I say, controversial opinion alert, but we are omnivores, you know what I mean? (laughs) meat is a natural part of our diet and provides things that that plants don't um but that's Mm -hmm. a whole nother podcast (laughs) so i started to kind of talk about that concept of of one health or the approach of one health so it's kind of that interconnectedness where we're talking about humans and animals and the environment as as a a study together which to me, sounds a lot like what agriculture has always been about. Um, so what is the role of veterinarians in the One Health approach? Yeah, yeah. I think um, veterinarians, if I may say, um, kind of tend to be a little bit further along um, or kind of more ready to discuss or more, I guess, interested in this than human medical professionals. As far as I can see, it seems to be that um, veterinarians are leading the way on this a little bit in terms of the medical professions. Definitely agree that agriculture farmers um you know are very much in tune with a one health approach as well because everything is linked um but i guess vets have a quite a unique perspective in terms of studying um the range of animal species and and what diseases and things they have and also relating that back to kind of zoonotic disease of of humans and a lot of um like farmers will know a lot of uh, animal health issues really come down to environment come down to husbandry, come down to diet, come down to, you know, stocking densities, ventilation, housing, all these kind of things that as farmers or food producers, we know inherently because it's just part and parcel of what we do. Um, everything is completely linked. You can't take one thing out and um, without affecting the other. Um, and I think the role of vets, a lot of people, I think, um, Katie, your, one of your first questions to me was, you know, um, are you still practicing as a vet or are you still are you still a vet? I often get asked, are you still a vet? Or when I talk about my job, they go, oh, that's a pity you're not a vet anymore. And I say, I am absolutely a vet. Um, you know, and actually I wouldn't um, be as passionate or potentially have gone down the, the kind of um, routes I have without having become a vet. But being a vet is not just sitting in a clinic or standing in a clinic, either, you know, treating dogs and cats um, every day in an indoor environment or going out on the road and and treating farm animals and horses and things um, on a kind of other people's properties. Being a vet is actually quite a diverse career. And I know a lot of vets who have incredible jobs, but jobs I never knew about when I started um, vet school, Um, working for government on policy and epidemiology and disease control, um, working in food safety and, you know, inspections and making sure there's not notifiable diseases or zoonotic diseases in in our food, basically. Um, working as policy for, in policy for conservation um, or ecosystem health, um, wildlife aid charities, things like that. So there's loads and loads of different things that, that vets do, um, not just can do, but do. Um, 
and I think yeah it's just a kind of a, quite a unique perspective because we do learn about human medicine as well as animal health and medicine on an individual and on a population level and we learn a lot about um, food food production and how to grow food and how to believe it or not a lot of people kind of go what I had lectures and lectures on how to grow grass <laughs> and how to produce silage and what made good hay and people are like why did you learn that as a vet because like, it's all connected the food makes the animal and and the animal um you know um, is either healthy or it isn't so i just think the the veterinary um space the veterinary industry i suppose has kind of pushed forward this one health concept a lot because we have that kind of unique combination of human animal and environment um in our training and the type of people i think it attracts we I think I think most vets you ask don't say I just went into veterinary because I wanted primarily wholly just to work with animals. I think a lot of vets are quite empathetic people as well. They also want to help people because there's a person attached to most animals that you treat unless it's wildlife and or an orphan or, or stray or something. There's normally a human story behind that animal as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a quite kind of a unique mix and um the one health area is, is definitely fascinating. So I'm wondering, it seems like historically it was a lot more common for everybody to take part in sciencey sorts of things. And I mean, part of that is just the amount of scientific advancements that's happened in the last 200 years or so. Um, I'm wondering how we can make citizen science a more common thing. I mean, there's obviously things like... Um, creating new vaccines or new medications that I don't really just want, you know, somebody off the street <laughs> to wander in and be like, well, maybe I can help with this, you know, like for that, you probably should have studied it. We're not um, going back to but medieval as far times, as things, no. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of like medical science podcasts and things like that. And it's, there's some terrifying stuff out there. Um, but as far as things like wildlife or conservation science there's a lot of that that the average joe farmer can participate in mm. and i'm wondering how we can a explain why it's important and b really encourage folks to do it and to feel like it's a substantial contribution to the world yeah um, yeah um because it's it's a fascinating thing and i hate this idea that you know you can't do science if you haven't gone to school for at least you know 12 years and it's you know that you have to be a csi person in a lab coat or you can't you can't science without a lab coat yeah, yeah. no i totally agree you should just give everybody lab coats and be done with it <laughs> yeah yeah wellies and a a, a tray and a, a, a net are perfectly good to go out and do some citizen science yeah i think people can get involved um and i think farmers can definitely kind of um, partner up with organizations in their local area to come and work together i mean we've seen it quite a bit like with ealing wildlife group and um the local council right a lot of nature groups that get set up on social media like we did um end up just being these like adversarial voices that are constantly criticizing what the local council does and you know going oh they've mown the grass verges again that could have been wildflower meadow or oh they've chopped down this tree in a park that was like 
getting old and there was loads of bats and beetles and owls and things living in that tree and they're the worst people in the world and now they're planning a high-rise development and this is bad we don't want high-rise in our town it's like actually maybe a more productive way would be to come on board with them and try and work alongside them and try and be their friends rather than be their enemies as a straight off kind of thing and this applies across the board and we've honestly i'm not blowing my own trumpet too much i kind of am but what we found the way it works the way things get on and progress and pe- most people stay relatively happy uh, and get what they want is with collaboration um you have to collaborate and there's countless i don't know about your parts of the world like on a very local level but there's countless organizations out there each with their own kind of um mission statement or area of expertise you know if you want you can go and have a moth survey done on your land and no offense to moth enthusiasts but some old bloke in glasses and a dodgy haircut will rock up in the middle of the night with some lamps and he'll tell you you've got 126 species of obscure brown moth on your land but that's great because it's creating a baseline and you know what you can do next time you can get normal people sorry moth dude to come in and do a moth trapping night and show them the smorgasbord of moths and the fact that all of these little brown job moths are actually a different species and show them in the book. This is how you identify them. And some of those moths will be incredibly interesting looking things. And some of those kids and families that come along to your bio blitz or biodiversity day on your farm might go, oh my God, that was fascinating. And then they might stop in your farm shop on the way out and they might buy some of your produce. And not, again, you know, collaborating and, and getting interested in those little things and bringing people aboard and showing them that may be traditionally thought of as obscure, boring scientific research actually can be very accessible and entertaining and something to do and fun and community building. And that's what we've found. And our um, our kind of, uh, I guess, biggest success in terms of engaging people in the community with citizen science um, or just with conservation, community-minded conservation in, in general, has been choosing the species we focus focus on very wisely. So you're probably not going to encourage people who haven't really connected with nature or citizen science or doing their bit for the environment by saying, we're going to go out and survey the lesser spotted conical reed snail. You know, that's boring. You need to find the species that actually will capture people's imagination. And our secret recipe has been harvest mice. So we've got this tiny little mouse, smallest um, rodent in Europe and Britain, um, and it's got a prehensile tail. It climbs little stalks of grass. It's absolutely tiny, um, and it's very threatened in the UK. And we decided to reintroduce harvest mice back into suburban London, basically, where we had um, suitable meadows now that were being managed for um, biodiversity. And actually, because we chose that mouse and we said, please sponsor an Ealing harvest mouse for £10, we raised all of the money we needed for the project within 48 hours. People thought this mouse was the cutest thing they've ever seen. And we actually said, come along and help us release. And then come along and help us do citizen science, doing nest surveys in the wintertime so that we can count year on year how many nests are in each each release site and see what the population is doing. And we've absolutely been blown away with the engagement that's got so i think choosing the right project and and getting on board with the right project allows you to do other things so we've always used these 
umbrella species or flagship species that actually whatever we do to conserve that species will have this radiating knock-on effect on loads and loads of other things and will win over hearts and minds both in terms of the landowners and the stakeholders involved in the project but also in the local community so yeah harvest mice has been a really good one for us but yeah i think it's just creating um citizen science projects that are not the old stuffy and boring traditional concept of scientists and ecologists and all that stuff and focusing on things actually that will capture people's hearts and imaginations that's the real secret i think Mm -hmm. helps when they're cute it very much does help cute (laughs) mammals are uh, (laughs) a real good uh, piece in your armory yeah yeah that's right yeah protecting bugs not so much but yeah like you said that that leads unless it's a really sexy bug you know that's true yeah yeah if it's got a nice pattern on it or something (laughs) So that leads me into my next question, which is another project that you've been working on called Egg Rewild. So can you tell us more about that and uh, how it started and how it's going? Yeah, for sure. Um, You're getting an exclusive on this one now. Um, Egg Rewild basically um, is a concept that I've had in my mind for a long, long, long time. Um, I am a what would I describe myself as? I was going to say I'm a failed farmer. I never got the chance to be a farmer. Because a lot of farmers are born into it, right? And now we're seeing kind of more um, young generations moving into farming for the very first time in their in their family history. Um, probably not the very first time, but, you know, in recent memory. Um, I was fascinated with farming. I'd, I'd love to have been a farmer. Um, I've been a very micro-scale farmer food producer just for my own needs and sharing with friends and family and things. But um, AgriWild kind of, I guess, came about because I ultimately had this dream of at some point down the line in my career when I'm a little more settled or accomplished or um, not wanting to do as much, you know, as many, have as many fingers in as many pots, I would like to buy a small farm. I would like to get involved in a small farm in some way. That could be when I'm 60 or it could be when I'm 40. I don't know. I'm 40 next year, by the way, so that time is coming um but maybe 41 42 maybe 41 42 yeah yeah i'm running (laughs) out of time i'm not going to hit it by 40 let's be honest (laughs) yeah yeah unless you're looking right now i know or i win the lottery tomorrow something like that (laughs) yeah yeah that's right (laughs) but anyway agri wild was basically i would like i would like to farm in future i want to farm in future in some way um but i over the last five years or ten years i've really moved into conservation as i talked to you about on a local level um and then i've been really fascinated by the rewilding movement um and this concept of allowing nature to restore on kind of large scale um you know like biggest scale in, in north america i suppose things like the classic case of yosemite bringing back wolves and the whole ecosystem changing and that's an example of rewilding but it doesn't have to be such large scale there's a there's a very um kind of uh, well-known project in England called NEP, K-N-E-P-P. Have a look at it. And they've basically, they were struggling to make ends meet on a three and a half thousand acre farm um, in the south of England, growing mainly arable crops and um, basically on very heavy clay and it would waterlog in the winter and it was difficult ground and they were struggling to basically make it profitable over many years. And they decided and, and pitched an idea to Natural England's government body to um, 
to do it as a rewilding project and basically give it up to nature, going against all of that generational duty that farmers have of keeping the place tidy. And they've had incredible results with lots of extremely rare species, what are known as farmland species, but traditionally um, come from different habitats and just manage to cling on in farmland. Bouncing back, things like turtle doves that are on the brink of extinction, cuckoos, nightingales, purple emperor butterflies, um, all kinds of weird and wonderful wildlife bouncing back because they've said, hands off, let natural processes take over and let's see what happens. And they've reintroduced, and I use that term in inverted commas, they've reintroduced some of the large herbivores that would naturally occur here um, or would have naturally occurred here before the last ice age. And they've also then introduced um, domestic proxies of some of those animals. So for instance, it was illegal for them to release genuinely European native wild boar that were native to the UK for public um, public safety caution, it cautiousness basically. So they released Tamworth pigs, which are a ancient um, heritage breed of pig. They released Exmoor ponies as the proxy for the wild tarpan, the ancestral horse that would have been in European landscapes. They introduced English longhorn cattle for um, proxy for the aurochs. The, the kind of um, ancestral cow or bovine. Um, and then they've seen with that kind of herbivore pressure, this like pulse vegetation growth and grazing and scrub development and um, keeping ponds and wetlands open and not having them kind of succession take in and turning into woodland. So there's constant flux of habitats basically happening. And I've visited there a few times in the last few years and just been fascinated by that and seen that actually they've got a farming model as well where they're selling this incredibly free-range organic meat um, at a high price point to their um, customers and most of their income in fact a third of their um, income from the entire estate is now um, based on ecotourism so they're bringing people in to show them that so i kind of saw that model on a large scale and then came up with a, a friend of mine and and um, work colleague of mine um, through lots of talking and lots of car sharing back and forth from work um, we decided to kind of set up, I guess, AgriWild to, to look at purchasing a farm property of some scale in the future and doing that combination of food production in regenerative agriculture ways, um, dedicated rewilding areas and, and um, a little bit of traditional kind of conservation as well, but using it as a hub space for people to come and learn to put on courses, to get in experts to talk about various ways of nature-friendly farming, traditional conservation and rewilding topics. So it will be this kind of meeting point in this hub space um, and maybe retreat space and have some ecotourism potential as well. Um, where we're up to is that um, Britain has just announced a recession, <laughs> which is not good news. There's a cost of living crisis. Um, you know, there's all kinds of global things happening um, in the last few years. Um, Brexit has happened, COVID has happened, uh, now Ukraine war has happened and cost of goods and cost of property and land has gone crazy because everyone who wanted that dream of moving to the countryside and had the money to do it, did it during COVID. So we're sort yeah. of, we've taken a little bit of a breather in terms of planning and um, we're going to revisit it probably next year and look at what, what actually could we afford to do how might we fund it? Um, how might it work? It's a slightly different model to what we an originally anticipated when we started looking at it about three or four years ago. So it's a bit up in the air and, and we're on a deliberate pause, but we're going to pick it up again next year, hopefully. Would mm -hmm. you come and stay? 
For sure, yeah. Build a, some little cottages or something, your yurts. Little glamping or, uh... pods or something, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so the project, that bigger project you were talking about, when I was thinking rewilding, I'm thinking that it everything just goes back to nature and there's no management at all, but it does sound like they at least are incorporating some some still some agricultural use of the land which is kind of an interesting way to to look at it yeah. may not be productive in this sense but it's still we can still kind of manage things and use them for for still our human purposes a little bit absolutely yeah and the interesting thing about the UK is that it's um it, certainly in terms of north american scale it's quite a small area and it's mm-hmm. got a quite a high and dense population you know, so we don't have those great plains where, you know, you don't see another person for miles and miles when you drive around. And we don't have that kind of big open landscape that allows for true rewilding where you just let it go, vast expanses of land back to nature and see what happens. Maybe, arguably, up in the highlands of Scotland, you do have those kind of scales. Um, and I guess one of the, the criticisms of rewilding is um, it's based on a very kind of um, tight definition of rewilding that it has to be no human intervention whatsoever and it has to include you know returning all of these species that have been lost and it has to be absolutely puritanical you know and and have no human impact but actually it can mean different things and I think actually a lot of the conflict comes from these tight definitions and people not understanding what people are talking about um there's a lot of movement to, in the rewilding community to move away from that word because it's become almost a bad word, um, especially mm-hmm. for farming and people who are producing food and feel like rewilding is a threat to their livelihoods. It's a threat to the way they manage their land. It's a threat to their ownership of land in general. So there's a movement towards calling it nature restoration rather than rewilding. Um, and that can sure. be done in various ways as well, you know. I think that in in some sense, though, it, it also plays into that the the fact that we're getting our food from other places right you you can't as farmers we've been told you know we need to produce more we need to make more Mm. food because there's less people farming there are more people eating right so so our our dependence on other places producing our food can sometimes mean that maybe land where we live can be rewilded or but does that in a global sense mean that in other places that land is is going in the opposite direction yeah it's like out of sight out of mind right it's like we're Mm -hmm. we're looking after our bit over here but then we're importing you know chilies from ghana and you know cherry tomatoes from morocco and Mm -hmm. i'm you know looking at Look, so it's like a, a privileged position to be like, oh, we're we're conserving here, but we'll just import more, and we from won't look at somewhere else what they're doing and what, what, what's what they're happening. decimating yeah. over there to produce that food. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So the global food supply, I mean, it's it's such a massive topic, and we can put all these systems in place in our, you know, what we control, but actually, if then that has a detrimental effect on the planet elsewhere, you know, how does that? How do the books balance? Um, it's, a, it's a real difficult topic. I think one of the things as well here, which is quite interesting, one of the big um, contentious things about rewilding over here is reintroduction of um, extinct native species. So I mentioned the beaver. We have the Eurasian beaver. It is basically almost the same as the North American beaver. does the same thing, but they're a different species genetically. Um, there's huge backlash from 
both farmer the farming community and fishing fisher like fishermen and fisherwomen the angling community thinking that beavers in rivers will damage fish stocks and it's like beavers have only been gone for 400 years that's the blink of an eye really in in terms of evolution and all of our fish and all of our trees that beavers eat um have evolved alongside beavers and bigger better herbivores you know um if you go back far enough Elephants and rhinos were wandering around the streets of London where they are now and knocking down trees and things like that. So our, we kind of just forget, we're so detached from nature, I think that we forget how much nature can recover. Um, and yeah, there's like talk of reintroducing some of the larger predators in Britain. Um, and that obviously has farmers really, really worried, understandably. Because if you are a sheep farmer in Scotland, it's absolutely natural that you don't want wolves back in Scotland because those wolves are, let's not sugarcoat it, they are going to kill some sheep. Of course yep. they are. <laughs> um, but Scotland is overrun with deer and deer are decimating the landscape in Scotland. And those rugged hills of Scotland and moors and, and crags and valleys that you see, you know, on a bottle of whiskey, um, uh, you know, of scotch, are not a natural landscape. They're a denuded, degraded um, landscape that basically has no tree cover because there's massive deer pressure and massive sheep pressure. So a tree can't get away as a sapling. It's just instantly grazed as soon as it germinates. So, you know, to to kind of balance it, I suppose, you have to say to farmers, yes, we understand that it's really threatening and we don't want it to be. There has to be a dialogue here. We want wolves or lynx or both back in the Scottish landscape because they do belong here, they are native and they're getting on with it in Europe we just happen to be um, over a strip of water that wolves and lynx won't colonise naturally um, if we do it, the government has to support it the government has to subsidise farmers for livestock losses and that just becomes part of it and maybe Scottish sheep farmers start to use livestock herding dogs as part of their um, repertoire of protecting their animals Um but also, if we want nature to recover, if we want to start drawing down carbon, if we want to become carbon neutral by 2050, like apparently they say we do, then the deer problem has to be tackled. And that's on a government level, but it's also on a consumer level. So if we're, you know, boycotting this and boycotting that, but there's a huge quantity of wild raised, high welfare, free range, organic meat out there in the form of deer, why doesn't the government say to the populous venison everyone needs to start eating venison venison needs to become mm -hmm. more popular venison needs to become subsidized let's make an industry out of eating the things that we should be eating on our doorstep before we import everything else from other places with our heads in the sand as to what harm that's causing you know yeah and to allow for all the things that go along with it processing capacity and and Air you know regulations and... for hunters and all that yeah. kind of stuff yeah yeah making it you know boost the economy get more people hunting deer you know it's a controversial mm -hmm. topic again but there's a ready supply of food there four of our six species of deer in the, in the uk are not native to this country but we're up in arms about potentially reintroducing lynx back which would be maybe fifth 150 lynx i think they said the scottish highlands would support they're not going to be taking out sheep left right and center they're occasionally mm -hmm. maybe going to be taking a lamb at the woodland edge, but their main prey is roe deer and, and other small deer species. Like, it solves a lot of problems. We have to have a dialogue. We 
we can continue to be one of the most nature depleted countries in the world over here or we can actually try and work together on solutions but just being like I don't want predators in the landscape because I farm sheep well sorry but no offence but reality check your sheep have wrecked the landscape so there needs to be a balance I can say too as a sheep farmer we hear a lot of the same thing about you know no coyotes no, no bears no nothing and to be honest, though, when you look at who's losing sheep, it's to the neighbor's dogs. Mm. You know, it's I know a few ranchers out west who've lost animals to larger predators, but realistically, it's dogs. Yeah. And I can see why it's easier to blame the wolves and to, to fuss over that than it is over things like, you know, shooting the neighbor's dog. It's probably not going to go over well. No. Um. I like this this image, though, of the rewilding being like Jurassic Park, but with <laughs> beavers and fewer things that are going to eat humans. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I, I do Like think... those giant prehistoric beavers, you know, the pictures they show yes. you of what like beavers yeah. actually looked like, those really big ones? Yeah. Bring beavers those back. Beavers the size of a house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Terrifying. I do think, though, when we talk about food importing and that, though, that, you know, the same as with all of the climate change that when folks say, you know, you have to give up your plastic straws and you can't drive anywhere and you can't do this and you can't do this. And then people are like, well, to hell with it. You know, I can't fix any of it anyway, so I'm just going to keep doing everything I'm doing. Mm. And, you know, if if importing food is so bad climate-wise and for what we're pushing off onto another country, it's... I think a lot easier to sell people on eating more locally if you're not saying, you know, you'll never have tropical fruit again. You're going to live on cabbage out of your, you know, your root cellar forever. I hope you enjoy it. Your life will seem a lot longer because you're the just drudgery. going to eat cabbage forever. <laughs> yes. As a, as a Irish Catholic famine immigrant, I can just feel it in my soul. Some good drudgery yeah. of cabbage and... A bit of a bit of martyrdom when it comes to food, right? Yes, but it's you know looking at how we can take advantage of human nature instead of just yelling at people for everything they do. I know it doesn't. It does. It just doesn't work. Like there's a lot of talk now about climate optimism and you know telling positive storytelling and things. And I have to admit, you know, I've had times we all I think have a degree of eco anxiety. And I've had times where I've just been so pessimistic about what we're doing to the planet. And, you know, the theme of my life, like looking at nature and, and um, biodiversity is just this downward trend in everything, everything falling off a cliff, everything plummeting in a very quick, short space of time. Um, it's, it's easy to be pessimistic and go, do you know what? I'm nearly 40. If I get another 40 years on this planet, I'll be you know happy enough. But I'm not really going to achieve anything as an individual in that. Feck it. I'll, you know, I'll fly where I want. I'll do what I want. I'll, 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 um, you know, not think about the next generations and that. But we do all have a chance to make a little difference. And I think you mentioned, you know, eating locally, um, grown food is really important. But I think you can kind of change that and say, like, eat seasonally and celebrate food. You know, it, it, it is normal. It has always been normal not to have certain things in season at certain times and enjoying those things when they do grow in your area, um, you know, and they're most delicious and most nutritious 
and haven't come from around the world, you can eat different things all times of the year. You know, so I'm a big believer in kind of um, supporting local farmers, you know, going to local farmers markets, um, CSA schemes, things like that. Um, that is also, we have to say, quite a privileged position to be in. Um, and you can't just tell people across the board, you need to eat more seasonally and locally, because actually eating seasonally and locally can be very expensive. And you can't tell people you shouldn't eat this and you should eat that. And you have to, some people are, you know, not able to afford to make good food choices and things. So this comes back to, you know, is the power with the individual? Yes, it is. Is the responsibility with the individual? No, it's not. The main responsibility is with our governments and with a very few, you know, Western countries in the world being the ultimate consumers and capitalists and having this culture of consumption, consumption, consumption at all costs and measuring success on growth at all costs and, and GDP, GD, or GDP. So um, I was getting my GDP and my data protection GDP or mixed up there. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, the responsibility lies with um, developed countries and um, with kind of the big global um, producers and, and the big global consumers. Um, so I think we do have individual responsibility. We do have, um, we can make it a difference as individuals, but we need to try not to let that guilt and eco-anxiety consume us because ultimately as individuals, we're not in huge amount of control. So I think, you know, trying to put that pressure on your local politician, you know, just even at a local level, you can, um, we can have a, a difference. If we start to make politicians work for us and say, you know, we vote you in, we pay, you know, your wage. Um, if politicians don't hear from their constituents that this is what we value and this, this is the change we want to see, then it's not going to happen or it's going to take bloody ages to happen. Um, so I think, yeah, need to be optimistic, but we also need to be kind of a little bit um, of activists, even on a local level as well, if that's what we really believe in. So I love our, our next question here in the outline just says Katie talks bats. Okay. And um, I did I did resist my urge to just yell bats at you when you got on the call. <laughs> and uh, you know, just wait until you interrupted me. Um, so before we get into more about why I'm asking you about bats, are Brits as afraid of bats as Americans are? Um, maybe not. I think the uh, the vampire bat and um, disease kind of myths and misconceptions around bats are a little bit more um, prevalent in North America than in Europe. Um, I could be wrong. I mean, Dracula originated over here, didn't he? So, by all accounts. Um, but yeah, there's definitely lots and lots of kind of um, misinformation and, and myths around bats that make people quite dubious of them or wonder, what's the point of a bat? Um but Katie, I think I believe you got in touch with me because you you came across some of my work with bats. Did you? <laughs> I've been trying to convince my husband that we should fly to London. Oh, really? For a bat walk. Now it's it's not going super well because London is like far away. It's a little bit far away. Yeah. We apparently have bats here. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, not the same. I'm I'm sure your British bats are much cooler. Um, I think as an American. There's such an assumption that bats are like attack animals and that maybe they're huge and that they all have rabies and that they're basically there entirely to kill you. Um, 
So could you perhaps set the entire American populace straight on the uh, the real risk of being murdered in your sleep by a, you know, especially around here, like our most common bat in Iowa is the little brown bat, which is, what, two ounces? Yeah. Three ounces? tiny. I mean, it's uh, not a real threatening animal. No. Okay, well, that's a big ask now. Convince America bats okay. are great. <laughs> All how many million people in America just explain to them because i feel like at least in the states if you tell people you love bats like you frequently get a reaction somewhere between you don't have any friends and like you had maybe just admitted to some really obscene personal interest (laughs) that you're just going to go ahead and tell people about and it's i want people to know how awesome bats are because they are (laughs) and they are I just feel like part of the problem, too, is that in North America, we don't have some of the the really cool bats. You know, we don't have mega bats, oh, yeah. which is the only Australian animal I've ever actually wanted to see. Yeah. Um, we don't have the Honduran bats that, you know, make little tents out of leaves. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, now I'm actually going to let you talk. I'm okay. I'm <laughs> not going to keep talking about my favorite bats. No worries. I was Fine. joking before we came on air. Maybe we'll have to do a bonus episode just about bats. <laughs> Arlene, I don't know if you'll join, <laughs> but I'll try and I'll try and summarize. So okay. here is my thesis on why bats are cool. <laughs> um, so, right. The disease thing, um, it's quite overstated and it's um, a little bit to do with science and research and how research is funded and research is done. So the first thing to say is bats are um, bats make up one in five mammal species on the planet so we believe there's about 1400 different species of bat that's changing all the time new species have been discovered some species are going extinct they're across virtually all of the the entire planet except for the poles so north and and south pole um arctic and antarctic and um they are extremely extremely varied group of animals they're mammals like us and because one in five mammals in the world is a bat more research on mammal viruses and diseases and things has been done in bats as a group, which are quite a generic group to most people, than any other type of mammal. So we've got more research and we've discovered more viruses in bats than in other types of animal. So there's this kind of magnification effect in the research that it seems like bats are just literally crawling with disease and have tons of disease, but proportionally it's not significant. We just have discovered, we've researched more about bats because we find them fascinating. There's a lot more bat research going on than in any other um, kind of group of mammals. Um, That's replicated across the world, across nearly 1,500 species. Therefore, we've just discovered more about them. So they're not riddled with disease by nature. That's a myth, number one. Um, They are uh, not flying mice. You know, pop, often people associate them with ro- they're rodents with wings. They're filthy. They're dirty. You don't, they're pests in your home. They'll cause a lot of damage. Um, nobody wants them around. They're basically like rats or mice. They're not at all. In Germany, they're called Fledermouse, which means flittermouse. <laughs> and in France, they're called Chauve-Souris, which means bald mouse. So there's always been this um, inherent thing that they were mice with wings. They're dirty. They're rodents. They're a source of pestilence. They're not. In fact, they're more closely related to us than rodents are and more closely related to us than they are to rodents. So I think 
Go on, Sorry, yeah. totally non-sciencey fact, but one of my favorite bat things is that their Latin name means, what, finger wings? Yes. Um, so they essentially fly by the power of spirit fingers, yeah. which I think is amazing. Or jazz hands. Jazz hands. You know, but, they're, yeah, just, yeah. they're just over here flapping away. Yeah, so they're, they're unique. incredibly cool. Yeah, they're really unique in the mammal kingdom. So they're the only mammals capable of true flight. So we've got things like sugar gliders and um, what's the other little thing? Uh, flying squirrels, you know, that will have a, a, a kind of a a strip or a kind of membrane between their limbs and they'll just jump off a tree and glide down to the next tree. But bats, yeah, you're right. The order of bats is known as chiroptera, which means hand wing. Um, so basically, um, I'm showing you guys, but basically their, their four fingers have a membrane between them. So half of their wing is their hand and half of their wing is their upper arm. And then their thumb is outside of the membrane and that's used for climbing. So they've got these cool limbs that no other mammal has. Um, and if you think about what we can do with our wrists, we can turn them in every direction independently of each other. So bats are extremely dexterous and, and um, motile in flight, as opposed to birds, which have a very fixed wing structure. But yeah, bats basically, because there's so many of them and they exist in all kinds of ecosystems, they provide an incredible amount of ecosystem services across the world. So some bats pollinate um, important plants. Um, anyone here a fan of tequila? Yes, two thumbs up. So bats are the only pollinator of the agave plant that tequila is made from. So without bats, we'd have no tequila. Now, if that doesn't convince America, bats aren't cool, I don't know what will. And it relates back to food production. Drink will include drink production in that. And um, they're pollinators, they're pest controllers. Um, they have a range of different ecosystem um, services. They um, have kind of symbiotic relationships with lots of different um, plants and things. And, and they fertilize um, ecosystems as well. Um, you mentioned the little, is it small brown bat is one of your local ones. Mm -hmm. So we have a very similar um, bat that occupies the same kind of niche. It's a bit of a generalist. It feeds on small flying insects. Um, it's the pipistrel. We have a two species, the common and the soprano pipistrel in Europe. And um, a single pipistrel, which is kind of, let's say it's the equivalent to your small brown bat, single pipistrel in an evening, it only weighs between four and six grams. So it's about the same weight as a pound coin in, in British money. Um, it'll fit inside its general standard tiny little matchbox when its wings are folded in. That single pipistrel can eat up to 3,000 midges in a single evening. So if you can imagine the amount of biting insects that also transmit bloodborne diseases and things like that in our ecosystems. If we didn't have bats, we would be, you know, in very, very big trouble because you'd have a huge, huge influencing factor um, taken out of the ecosystem that would lead to collapse of ecosystems and a lot of um, a lot more pestilence and disease potentially than we currently have. So they are they are really, really important. This thing of labeling certain animals as like dirty or the enemy or useless or what's their function the thing we need to realize is every single little thing even the little especially the little microscopic things at the very base layer of, of food chains and living ecosystems all of it is important and often we don't understand just quite how important until we take it out and all of the other pieces of the puzzle start to fall apart as well so um yeah if anyone listening is ever in london 
hopefully Katie you'll get here at some point in time but if anyone is in London I run a bat walk on Airbnb experiences in London and I bring people out from across the world um, tourists and people who live in London and people are just fascinated to learn quite how interesting and um, and important bats are so yeah there's a there's an offer for anyone coming over <laughs> and a plug <laughs> I do like too that bats are baby wearers yeah you know? I mean we have a lot of a lot of farmers you know a lot of homesteaders wear their babies I did so you know I thought that was kind of cool and I like the research that's coming out you know trying to translate their speech mm. and how much they found is basically just arguing between them yeah. about whatever they're arguing I about I, it feels very you know um human yes <laughs> yes it feels you're, very you're uh, feeling connected empathetic. to them yeah 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 there's a lot of chatter I um I so i i when i do a bat walk people are like what's a bat walk I bring out these little electronic um, detectors, basically a little piece of equipment that tunes into the bat's high frequency calls and translates it into a sound that we can hear. And you can actually, depending on the frequency and the type of sound, you can identify what bats are there. You can also tell the difference between echolocation calls where they're finding food in the dark and social calls where they're talking to each other and chatting, arguing, singing for a mate. All these fascinating behaviors we're finding out through using technology so yeah it is it's really really fascinating um they're they're just there's lots to learn as well because they've been such a mysterious nocturnal group of, of mammals we're still learning absolutely tons about them all the time you know all right well i really do think that we should have a uh, special episode completely about bats i hope you were serious about being willing to come do I that i mean because... it, it gets pretty it gets pretty weird yeah. when you start delving into yeah. bat biology so i'm more than happy to come on and, and do that i'm here for it um there, make it a special but i'll special let arlene ask a... episode <laughs> next halloween yes yes yes, yeah, yes. Sure. but we'll let will, a, we'll let will say i did a little new. bit of uh, bat tourism once we went to austin one time and there's oh yeah a big colony of mexican freetail bats under the bridge there and yes. we went and watched the bats take off there were millions of them all i was gonna say it's mil millions time. under that bridge free yeah and freetails yeah yeah yes yeah i'd like that's I'd my like my one that. My first bat tourism uh, opportunity. You see, bats are given back yeah. to society in in dollar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to bring it back to agriculture. Um, okay. So we are a parenting and egg uh, podcast, and a lot of our conversations end up coming back to wanting to be able to pass on farms to our kids if that's what they want, you know, mm. to, to be part of their career or part of their future. So I know you touched on it a little bit, but what are some other things that we can be doing to encourage the next generation to be thinking about biodiversity and conservation and nature, as well as carrying on the farm? Yeah, this is a tough one because, I mean, I don't have direct experience um, of it, I suppose. I see, like, with farming in my family in extended family i'm talking about kind of cousins and things um and i know farmers you know in general i have some friends who farm there is um on the one hand this like departure isn't there from agriculture and um even you know in this generation of current farmers people being pushed out by the economies of scale and the difficulty in making a living or turning a profit or you know, securing a future for your children and for your families to have something to inherit. Um, you know, it's yeah, getting sure. tighter and tighter all the time. Um, so I completely, you know, feel for, for that. Um, 
On the other hand, I think what's promising, and I touched on it earlier, is we do seem to be seeing this new generation of um, young people interested in farming and interested in going back to more connection to where their food comes from, to how we manage land and, and landscapes, um, and getting back to kind of more of a connected community, um, smaller scale, more local way of living. Now, I think that's extremely early kind of green shoots. I don't think that that's like, yay, we're all going back to, you know, the 1950s and we're going to live happily ever after again, uh, you know, and eat seasonally and help each other out and all that kind of stuff. But there does seem to be some promising changes coming. Um, I don't know if you'd, you'd agree with that or what you're kind of seeing in your kind of farming communities. Yeah, I, I think some, but then I also, you know, the skeptic in me is also wondering how many of those first generation farmers, like you said, are, are coming with their their finances from mm. other industries, other careers, you know, uh, sales of houses in the city, and then how much of that that farming career is actually going to be able to sustain itself. But that's the... I know, <laughs> you and know, I, the, I'm, the mul- I'm potentially that demographic <laughs> soon. Sure, yeah. You know? Um, and who and who's to say, you know, how, you know, like there's also a lot of creativity that comes with that and, and looking at yeah. different business models and all those types of things. So yeah. I'm not I'm not saying it's impossible. You know, it's just the, you know, the old farmer mentality, whether old means old in age or old in experience. generational yeah, experience. Yeah. Right. Or. Yeah. Yeah. I, do, I, I just know. I think it, it just comes back to trying to get kids uh, not just from like rural communities but from urban communities as well to welcome them in and to not have this like farm you know or rural ver- country versus town mentality and not to see the people that are coming into this industry with a genuine enthusiasm and probably naivety as the enemy or as like oh they're townies they don't know anything it's like come on like if we have this them and us mentality again in this space. What kind of progress and innovation are we going to make? They can learn a lot from you. Obviously they can. But you might, with an open mind, learn some stuff from them as well about yeah, business modeling or marketing or what social media can do for your business and, you know, things like that. So, I mean, it sounds very earnest and um, do-gooder and things like that. But, like, I, just, I would just say working together and trying to get young people enthused about it and having a more of an open gate policy on your farm and and trying to get people in not just for the hard sell or not just for maybe you know a boring little brown moth survey or (laughs) you know something that you know is quite um hardcore farm related like you know a talk on the latest you know machinery or weed killer or yeah. variety silage. of corn or whatever you have yeah yeah, yeah. it's like mm, you're not going to attract people with silage or little brown moths you know but attract them <laughs> yeah. in with something else and just try and try and connect your community with local farms and, and things like that I think that's the best thing to do but kids are naturally you know we, we we're a biophilic species right we're attracted to and drawn to and enjoy being around living things and nature whether that's animals or plants or just the outdoors kids have that inherently in them and I think coming back to you know our teaching our kids to be afraid of spiders kind of thing we sort of in some ways um, drive it out of them but also society is constantly moving towards driving that out of them and, and taking them away from that biophilic instinct they have 
So I think at every opportunity, giving kids the, the opportunity to, to kind of engage with nature, engage with um, animals and livestock and how we're connected to nature. I think one of the biggest problems we have, whether you're talking about climate change, carbon emissions, changing behaviours, um, making the right choices for the planet, is this kind of disconnection and feeling like um, we're the worst thing that ever happened to nature. As if we're this malevolent force that got beamed down from another planet and suddenly landed here and started destroying it we're not we're part of nature and we were very much linked in part with nature part of nature across the board just 150 years ago it's only like literally in a a few generations the blink of an eye that our species has suddenly started to sort of turn on the planet and become a negative force on a widespread scale and a global now a global community um, so I, I'm totally optimistic that we have uh, time and space and opportunity to turn that around. It's going to take time. And I think we're unfortunately living through the most frustrating period of it where everyone's fighting. It's all shit. Everyone hates each other. You're a dickhead. I don't like your politics. Screw you. Yeah. Nothing's happening fast enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just this awful, awful time in the world's history where um, it seems like everything is going to shit. And, you know, we have to try and nurture those little green shoots that are poking through, and we have to do that by working together, not against each other. Mm -hmm. So this is the opposite of the, kind of the inverse of that question, because I know you used to be an exotic pet veterinarian. So (laughs) this is my my question about um, responses for when your kids ask for ridiculous pets. Um, so kind of squ- squashing that that uh, nature curiosity because I've got an eight year old who thinks he really wants an axolotl because of Minecraft. Um, so when we have children who ask for things that are very hard to care for or uh, uh, maybe not the easiest to uh, have in our houses, what's your veterinarian response to uh, those questions? Get him an axolotl. Oh no, <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to let him listen to this. No, look. This is this is a double-edged sword for me because I, you know, I was an exotics vet mainly because I was interested in wildlife and I, I knew more about lots of different species than most of my vet classmates, for example. So it just became apparent that maybe I should consider exotics and I chose zoo medicine because I wanted to work in conservation and when I ended up in kind of private practice, I ended up treating exotic pets because I knew about them and got a reputation that I was the vet to go to. But it became a double-edged sword because I did find that actually a lot of stuff in exotic pet keeping um, actually is ethically dubious because there's trade in wild-caught animals, especially in the reptile and amphibian trade. Um, there's uh, harm and destruction to um, kind of natural ecosystems. There's trade in wild birds um, and some birds like parrots, for example, that I would say it's extremely difficult to keep them successfully and well in captivity for their life's duration. Um, A lot of them being kept on their own when they're social species and things. I just found that actually I wasn't really, I wasn't really bettering things in that industry by being an exotics vet and treating individual animals often when they were at death's door because their owner really didn't understand how to keep them. And by the time they brought them to the vet, they were almost doomed anyway. Um, I, I kind of became a little bit, jaded with the whole thing and 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 left part of the reason I left clinics was that I just thought 
I'm not making a big difference here. I want to work on a bigger scale of like talking about nature and planet and ecosystems and, and wildlife. I don't want to be trimming a parrot's claws that's 35 years of age and has never left Beryl's kitchen in, you know, um, southwest London. That's yeah. not really and changing it, the planet. Yeah, and, and only seeing these animals that are potentially sick and maybe not cared for in a way that that is really the best for them wouldn't yeah, really... and it biased me. <laughs> meet the reason that you it were in the field to begin with it didn't nurture my soul <laughs> let's put it yes. that way um and yeah and i think it did bias me towards the bad sides of exotic pet keeping and things but I, what i would say is a lot of the, the problems in exotic pet keeping are to do with um the types of pets kept and i think the the kind of dare i say higher orders um of of vertebrates so things like your mammals and your birds and reptiles to a certain extent um well definitely reptiles but maybe for a different reason you can really get it wrong and you can really cause a lot of welfare issues and harm um reptiles and amphibians both being kind of cold-blooded land dwellers that's really about environment and the equipment you use to keep them which costs you know 10 20 times the purchase price of the actual pet so there's an issue there with people skimping and trying to do things on the cheap um Tropical fish, I've kept fish all my life um, at various times on and off. You know, aquariums fascinated me because seeing into this underwater world and ecosystem and being able to look at it up close. But what I'd say with things like fish or amphibians, like an axolotl, you can keep them very well, um, relatively cheaply on an ongoing basis. Yes, the setup will cost you quite a bit of money initially, um, but they're fairly low maintenance and they do provide a fascinating insight into very unrelated organisms to us. Um, and I think there is a, a, a toss up or a bit of a balance between giving a child a unusual little pet like that, that you can cater for quite well in captivity and nurturing that fascination with the natural world and giving them a really interesting and cool pet. It has to be well thought out and you have to believe the child will it's not just a novelty request, you know what I mean? Um, but sure, yeah. I, I, as a boy, a lot of my early fascination came from that bug bottle, putting a ladybird in a jar and watching it, or getting some frog spawn from the local pond and putting it in a little tank and watching those tadpoles grow into frogs. And if I didn't have those early formative experiences with nature and how amazing and fascinating it was, then I may not be where I am today. So it's hard for me to say, no, we shouldn't keep pets at all. You shouldn't keep a wild animal in an aquarium for a child's entertainment. That's difficult for me to say because actually axolotls are only in this world because of captive breeding. They're thought to be potentially extinct in the wild. They're easy to breed in captivity. They're easy to keep very well in captivity. They don't suffer welfare problems if you do it right. And they make fascinating topics. They're a biological anomaly. You can teach kids about all sorts of things like, you know, old school pregnancy tests were done by weighing on amphibians like axolotls and African clawed frogs. And 
axolotls have amazing stem cell regeneration properties. <laughs> Katie's laughing here. Now you're convincing me to get the pet that I didn't want to get in the first place. But I it does kept sound axolotls cool. for years. I, I, even <laughs> as an adult, I kept axolotls and people are like, you are such a weirdo. And I'm like, no, let me tell you about axolotls and how cool <laughs> they are. Um, so I could wax lyrical about an axolotl for a long, long time. But I do, I do think there is value sometimes in, you know, allowing a kid to have a pet that really fascinates them and indulges their passion for biology and can be a very formative experience for them. But you just have to accept that maybe the axolotl is going to eventually be your pet. And they yes. do live They do live to potentially about 20 years. It's 15, 20 years. Oh, so. yikes. Yeah. Amphibians live a long well, time. I think maybe we'll stick with what we've been doing the last couple summers is when we catch a turtle out in the creek, we will bring it home and have it in the tank on the porch for a few days, and then we will go and bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a good amount of observation. Tem temporary pets are also a solution. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah good. that's good. Arlene, are you regretting? asking about the axolotl no because were you hoping for a hard no on that no but like i said my eight-year-old will never listen to this episode until he's probably much older so by then maybe he'll have moved on or he by will then his axolotl will be five <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm gonna call and tell him <laughs> all right so we ask all of our guests if you were going to dominate a category at a county fair what would it be and categories can be real or made up so that you uh ensure your domination okay i had a hard time with this one i was like what are, what am i good at you know that would stand up at a county fair so um this is a bit of an off the wall one but i think my category would be rudest vegetables so i've been growing vegetables for quite a while and i put my like food growing exploits on social media a lot and nothing gets a bigger reaction on social media than like a massive phallic vegetable or a carrot with, um, you know, human-like appendages between, you know. So there's been a few things along the way where I've grown a vegetable yeah, that has... X-rated vegetables. Yeah, X-rated vegetables. That's what we would call it. I think I would win yeah. there because I've had quite a few admissions that were like, oh my God. And sharing them on social media, people um, get a good reaction to that. To the point that I even had... Um, some people sending me seeds for like deliberately bred rude shaped vegetables oh wow yeah. so that yeah. must take some uh, interesting breeding i know programs. have you heard of a <laughs> have, you... have you heard of a willy chili no well it exists and you can buy seeds for it online and it's remarkably realistic <laughs> <laughs> So I think X-rated vegetables is definitely where I excel. Yeah, I'll definitely be uh, scanning your social media for some uh, rude veggies. Yeah, yeah. I was just picturing how much that would have perked up our high school biology class. Exactly right. You know, I mean, you're talking about the what the um, the pea flower experiments. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. With yeah. the genetics and or you know, we're if always gone straight to phallic shaped. Things, yeah. I think kids would have been a lot more interested. We're, we're always talking about getting kids to try new vegetables too. So I mean, if, the, if there you go, if don't try, rude, don't try that, that chili. That's a little bit too far on the scale. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's too much. All right, Un, got it. Unusual vegetables for kids. There's some kids safe versions. I have, to, I do have to say, most of mine were like accidental or just like, oh, that looks a bit funny. I'll post that. <laughs> yeah, if we turn it this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's my. All right. 
your category. That's an awesome one. We'll go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment. We've registered for an online platform called SpeakPipe where you can leave your cussing and discussing entries for us and we will play them on the show. So go to speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language and leave us a voice memo or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com and we will read it out for you. Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week? Well, Arlene, it feels on topic for this uh, episode. I'm going to cuss this push towards making people be normal. It's so boring. Why would we want people to be the same? Why would we want nature to be the same? It sounds boring and lame. And if your kid's into weird shit, let them be into weird shit. Encourage them to be into weird shit. You know, I mean, it's just so sameziness to just make them all afraid of the same stuff and make them all, you know, you can only be interested in in this, this, and this, or people will think you're weird. Like, yeah, and then we'll ask you on our podcast so you can talk about the weird things you like, you know? Um, Anyway, I'm a very proud parent of two very strange children. Good. They're the best ones, Katie. They really are. So, Sean, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? I'm in the middle of an interesting little kind of campaigning um, era in my life, I suppose. There's there's, um, a thing going on with dogs in the UK at the moment where people are chopping off their ears, cropping their ears for cosmetic reasons. And um, I know in the States, at least, like the American Kennel Club, um, not only... Not only is it legal to crop dogs' ears, but the American Kennel Club actually asks for certain breeds to be cropped for the show ring because it's tradition. In the UK, it's illegal um, and it's considered a mutilation, but it's a rising trend because of social media and because of the look that's kind of glamorized um, in certain breeds. Um, But we're actually at the stage where um, we're looking for a ban on importing these dogs so that basically any dog that shows up after a ban on importation will be known to be illegally cropped and it's there you know there seems to be some pros and cons and people are believers in cropping dogs ears and that's not what i'm i've been campaigning on what i'm campaigning on is because there's a legal loophole in being allowed to import them lots of puppies are having their ears literally just cut off behind closed doors with no pain relief no anesthesia mm, not being done by yikes. vets it's a massive welfare issue so that's what i'm um cussing this week because it's being debated in Parliament now, as we speak this evening, um, for the third time, and hopefully, hopefully, it's going. The government are going to act on it and ban the importation, which will mean far less puppies having their ears chopped off by dodgy breeders behind closed doors. Yeah, that seems like a, a good cause to champion for sure. Yeah, leave their ears alone. Yeah, if you don't, if you want pointy or short, stubby ears on your dog, breed them that way. Don't cut them off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's my rant over. Sorry. <laughs> Ending on an angry note. <laughs> no, I I saw your post about cutting their ears off the other day and it just ugh. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss? So I'm going with the pet theme, not as hard hitting, but we have a dog and two cats and a rabbit, um, who are mostly in the house. And there's just so much poop. I mean, not the dog. It goes outside. But 
between the litter boxes and the rabbit litter box and the rabbit has shavings which then floofs around and then the smells and finding the right places for the litter boxes so they don't smell as much it's just it's a lot of poop and i love having pets but yeah the poop is too much at least i do have children to start emptying these litter boxes but then it's the reminding because i'm the one who seems to hit a threshold first where it's like okay Mm. time for this to get cleaned out yeah yeah you end up in that weird like standoff with the litter box (laughs) is someone else gonna clean clean it up or am i just gonna have to break down when they're at school because i can't deal with it anymore well there's there's the wage you see for um getting an axolotl is at Mm -hmm. least three litter cleans a, a week for an extended period of time, oh. and then the axolotl can come, you see? Like oh, a okay. A little bit mm-hmm. of bargaining there. Yeah. All right, we'll see. No, he's not getting an axolotl. <laughs> <laughs> Arlene, you did just buy your daughter a cow. That is which true. Which I think could be argued is a fairly large investment compared to one axolotl. Yes. I mean, yes, yes, the cow will hopefully pay dividends, and you were already set up for it, yeah. but feel like that argument could be made as well yeah. i'm gonna bring your kid an axolotl let's just face it <laughs> yeah. you can bring him that tiger salamander katie from your basement <laughs> from your basement no, that's my tiger salamander i'll have to find him another one yeah. someone else's basement. we have nice conversations when i'm down there <laughs> yeah so. a good listener so thank you so much sean for joining us this week if people want to follow you online and find out about your various projects where and to listen to your podcast we didn't actually even talk about your podcast but you also have a podcast where can people find you um probably the best place to go all in one place is um instagram so on instagram and twitter my handle is that vet sean and it's sean with s-e-a-n um i also have a website uh, which is dr sean mccormack.com um if they want to see ealing wildlife group the work i do there in my borough in london it's ealingwildlifegroup.com and the the podcast is Sean's Wild Life. Thank you very much. It was great chatting with you. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, all the places. <laughs> yeah. If they're listening to us, they know where to find podcasts. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great chat. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.